am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. We are in the state that looks like a mitt yet again. Michigan! Lovely Michigan. Michigan is quite lovely. Uh, it also has some weird laws. I will admit, not the weirdest we've come across on our road trip. Because that's actually pretty hard to do now, mm-hmm. to find laws weirder than the ones that we've already discussed. That's true. Uh, I did have a favorite weird law for Michigan, though. Oh, okay. It's illegal to sell painted sparrows as parakeets. And I chuckle every time I think about like an epidemic of like faux parakeets. Like people like capture a sparrow and they paint it so it looks like a parakeet. Oh, God. I thought you meant like (laughs) someone like carved or chiseled a sparrow and then painted it. It was like, here, it's a parakeet. It's a live bird they've slapped paint on. Jesus. And they're like, it's a parakeet. Yeah. That's why I like looked around the room and was just like, what the hell is she even? What what is this? Could you imagine like why that law was written? (laughs) Just like. God damn it. Show my fake parakeets. Wow. Okay. That was like my favorite. I chuckled so much. That's pretty sad. (laughs) And you know, there was like some politician standing on his soapbox being like, and there is an epidemic in this city. Too many fake parakeets. I want this stopped. These atrocities need to end. If you reelect me, I guarantee. How many more people must suffer? Uh, the other like group of weird laws I found that were interesting were all about how men and women interact. Okay. Yeah. So a bunch of weird laws. That so weird, to this. probably sexist things. Uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. All right. So it's illegal for a woman to cut her hair without getting her husband's permission first. That's fucked up. Yes. Yes. Uh, if a man quote seduces and corrupts end quote an unmarried girl, he can be sentenced to up to five years in prison. There goes my weekend plans. <laughs> Mine too. Weird. <laughs> In Detroit, it's illegal for a man to scowl at his wife on a Sunday. Wow. Yeah. So no sour pusses on Sundays, guys. Right. In Kalamazoo, it's against the law to serenade your girlfriend. Okay. That seems very arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too many singing guys in the street. So annoying. <laughs> Uh, adultery is illegal in the state of Michigan, but it can only be punished if the affected husband or wife files a complaint. Okay. Sounds sensible enough, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They're the wronged party, so they have to press charges. Yeah. And last but weird, weirdly the most weird, it's illegal for couples to make love in an automobile unless the act takes place when the vehicle is parked on their couple's own property. Okay. You know, that's that's not a bad law. So keep it in the driveway, folks. Yeah. I mean, especially if you have a garage, it'd be private. No one has to see your bare ass up against the <laughs> the windshield. But like if you're at home, like just go inside. Yeah, I, I know. But people like to get creative. You know, after the years of marriage, you kind of lose your <laughs> spice a little bit and you need to get some of that flavor back in the bedroom just or the we driveway. <laughs> we'll park in the driveway. So. Yeah. Why the hell do you park in a driveway and drive in a parkway? No. Oh. That's a great question. Yeah. (laughs) If any of our listeners out there know the answer, please tell me. There's also a joke that was on like a popsicle stick. Oh, no. That was, when is a car not a car? When it turns into a driveway. Oh. Yeah. That's like the Dora Jar joke. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. So I have a bit of a dark true crime story today okay it's not delightful no i wouldn't say it's delightful i would say it's interesting and it's a story that i remember learning about when 
I was much younger because of the TV movie that they made based off of it. Ooh, okay. Starring Farrah Fawcett. Oh, man. So you may have heard of it before, Eden. But today we're heading to Dansville. It's a small village in southeastern Michigan. Dansville has a population of 563 people, and it's about one square mile in area. So it's pretty tiny. Yeah. The village's primary industry is agricultural research and production, but its overall economy is really driven by small businesses and the close proximity of the village to the state capital of Lansing and also Michigan State University. Whenever I hear about some places' main thing being agriculture, I always think of Rue from The Hunger Games, and then I get sad. <laughs> I've listened to that damn book on the audiobook like five times at work because I just always go back to them when I don't have more credits from Audible. All right, question. When they do, like, they talk about the whistle, do they make the whistle sound from the movies? No, they do not. They just describe it. Excellent. Which is weird. But the fun thing about the audiobook version is... It's technically a children's book since it's young adult, mm-hmm. even though, you know, she gets like blown up, half her leg torn off, a lot more gruesome than the movies. Uh, but in the beginning of the audiobook, you hear a little kid's voice go, Audible Kids presents. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. Horrible violence, but only kissing. Yeah, exactly. Um. Oh, yeah. So agricultural little village of Dansville. Uh, Dansville was first settled in 1844 and was one of the first permanent settlements in Ingham County. The village was officially incorporated in 1867. Interestingly enough, the town was named Dansville by Daniel Crossman, who owned a lot of the land in the settlement and who officially plotted the town. Way to make it all about you, Dan. Well, it was about him and the local postmaster, another guy named Daniel Weston. Okay. Hence the Dans. Fine, I guess he can have. they can have this one. <laughs> the one point of interest I discovered in Dansville is the Dr. D.J. Weston Octagon House, which sits on East Mason Street. It's a 12-room octagonal, 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 yeah. Yeah, octagonal-shaped house with more than 3,000 square feet of space. It was built in 1863 by, you guessed it, Dr. D.J. Weston, and is one of the 500 remaining homes of this type in America. I was absolutely fascinated because I'd never heard of an octagonal house. I've heard of, you know, geodesic domes, things like that, but never an octagon house. It turns out that this house is an example of this really unique American and Canadian mid-19th century building fad that was popularized by one guy, this guy named Orson Squire Fowler. Now, Fowler was a noted lecturer and phrenologist, and according to his book... Phrenologist? Yes, oh, a phrenologist. Damn. For those of you that don't know, it's um, the bumps on your head that they're reading. It tell you about a person's personality yeah. and uh, what they can achieve in life. Which is complete and total rubbish. Yeah. But, you know. It's the height of pseudoscientific bullshit. Yep. Now, according to Fowler's book, because he had lots of books, but he wrote one especially about the Octagon House, calling it the Octagon House, a home for all. Building homes using the octagon shape allowed for ample additional living space, more natural light, and easier to control temperature. Oh, there's apparently one in Cape May, New Jersey, too, because I'm looking it up to get a picture now. Yeah, there's there's, there's quite, quite a few. Oh, it's cool. Yeah, they're cool looking houses. Some of them are two story or three stories. A lot of them have uh, like a cupola on the top. Oh, wow. I, I like these. I would totally live in an octagon house. Me uh, too. It seems kind of cool. I love natural light gonna make one in the sims now (laughs) but uh we're not here in dansville to talk about wacky victorian pseudoscientific influenced architecture we're here for the good stuff you know murder 
course, the bread and butter of our podcast. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's one specific murder, a murder that lit up the night skies on March 9th, 1977, and forever changed the way Americans viewed the ordeal of domestic violence. Oh. This is the story of Francine Hughes and the burning bed. Okay. You know what? This sounds familiar. I mean, you said Farrah Fawcett, and that Mm -hmm. sounded familiar, too. So I guess we'll find out. She was born as Francine Moran in Stockbridge, Michigan, on August 17th, 1948. As a child, she watched her father, a farm worker and an alcoholic, regularly beat her mother. Francine later said that her mother told her, quote, you did what was best for your husband, end quote. So basically, she was set up for success. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, not a good example. Mm. Now, this was a lesson that young Francine apparently took to heart when she dropped out of high school at 16 to marry James Mickey Hughes in 1964. The marriage quickly turned abusive with Mickey violently lashing out at Francine and then acting remorseful over his behavior. So he's practically Mickey Rourke. <laughs> well, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> if you can't stand the heat, get off of Mickey Rourke's sex grill. Woo! Flip me over. I am done. Now, years later, she would recall the beginning of Mickey's abusive and controlling behavior. It actually started on their honeymoon, which is so heartbreaking. She said, quote, I bought some new clothes and he practically ripped them off me. I didn't know if it was whether I looked too pretty or what, but he didn't want me to look that way, end quote. Damn, that's yeah. controlling and horrible. Yeah. And you're like 16. Yeah, that's real bad. Yeah. Over the next few years, the couple had four children together and Mickey began to drink more and more regularly and more heavily. By 1971, Mickey was spending a majority of his income on booze and Francine was fed up with his abusive and controlling behavior. She went to a local social worker who helped her file for divorce. Though the divorce was finalized in April of 1971, Mickey just sort of ignored it. And his abuse of Francine continued. Damn. He'd randomly show up at the family's home and barge in. During these times, he'd often demand sex or just straight up beat Francine. Holy shit. That's wonderful. Okay. Then a short while afterwards, Mickey was badly injured in a car accident and needed constant care. Francine reluctantly agreed to let him move back in with her and the kids. In her later court testimony, she said that despite her misgivings, she felt that she could not refuse him and that she didn't want to, quote, hurt him more than he was already hurt in the accident. Oh, God. I mean, I get it. She's a nice person. Yeah. But still, there are limits. Yeah, and it's like the father of her kids and he needs help. Yeah. I mean, I've been fooled like that before. Mm -hmm. But you just, you got to do what's best for you at some point. As Mickey recovered, he eventually started abusing Francine again. He would drink heavily and then beat and choke Francine. He would destroy furniture in the house. When Francine tried to call for help after one vicious beating, Mickey ripped the phone lines straight out of the wall. Damn. In another incident, he strangled their daughter's kitten to death in front of Francine as a warning of what he could and would do to her. Oh, my God. Like, he's a straight-up monster. Yeah, I'd say. Now, feeling trapped, as any woman would... Francine turned to to professional counselors and social workers, but they couldn't help much. Since she had already divorced Mickey, they could only really offer her things like assertiveness training. Oh, God. Or tranquilizers. Because that's going to help. Yeah, Mm -hmm. ignore the problem. Here's some tranquilizers. Have some pills, honey. Just a little Valium will do you. But when it came to getting concrete help to get her ex-husband out of her house and her life, she was out of luck. Yeah, I... Yeah. That's really unfortunate. This is this is not a delightful story no, at all. it is not delightful. 
Though Francine considered pressing charges against Mickey several times, she never did. She was really concerned that the charges would be dismissed and he'd be released if he was arrested and he'd be even angrier than he normally was. So sadly, Francine was probably right about the lack of support she'd received from law enforcement and legal system in this regard. Yeah, I'd say. In the 1970s, husbands who abused their wives were commonly ignored by police and judges. I found this truly horrifying New York Times cover story that described how police would turn away women who arrived at their precincts after being beaten or raped by their husbands. Police would tell women, quote, it's not a police department thing, ma'am. It's really a family thing. Oh, God. You'll have to go to family court. There's nothing we can do to help you. That is complete and total bullshit. Isn't that horrifying? But this was before the laws, right? Yeah, before the uh, uh, domestic uh, violence law. Yeah. Violence Against Women Act. Yeah. Because that didn't happen until the 1990s. Which is just fucked up. Uh, This Times article I found went on to report that out of the 7,273 cases filed in New York's family court in 1975, only 34 resulted in sentences to a workhouse or prison. Damn. All with a six-month maximum term, which is almost never imposed. That's insane. Yeah, insane. An official of family court who was quoted in the article said that suspended sentences and warnings were commonly what judges handed out to abusers and the official estimated that only about half of all the abuse cases were actually reported wow yeah sometimes people are afraid to speak up because just like she thought what happens now he's going to be more angry and he's going to come after me even harder than Mm -hmm. he did before and he might hurt the kids now i just can't have that happen so with the system and the community failing her francine continued on as best as she could she was determined to get away from Mickey eventually and give her kids a better life. So she decided, I'm going to go back to school. She spent the mid-70s getting her GED, and in 1976, she enrolled in secretarial school. Now, Mickey continued to live with Francine and her four kids off and on throughout this time, and he was the same old abusive bastard he'd always been. But things really came to a head on March 9th, 1977. That afternoon, Francine arrived home from school and found a drunk and angry Mickey. Mickey began to argue with her, demanding that she quit school. He even demanded that she burn her textbooks. When he began to beat her, Francine managed to get away and call police. The police arrived and spoke to both of them, but they refused to arrest Mickey since they hadn't actually seen him assaulting Francine. Even though the responding officers heard Mickey threaten Francine, he supposedly said to her, quote, it was all over, end quote, for her now because she had called the cops. They left anyway. Like, what in the actual fuck? Yeah, why would you? After this, Mickey, of course, continues to drink and Francine starts making dinner for her kids. Enraged, Mickey threw all the food on the floor. He then forced Francine to the floor by twisting her arm behind her back and making her clean up the mess with her hands. After she finished, He kicked over the trash can and dumped it all over the floor and then forced her to clean that up. Wow. Okay. Sounds like a wonderful guy. Mm -hmm. Then he somehow browbeat her enough that she agreed to quit school and burn her textbooks. He told her, quote, if you think things were bad before, they're going to get worse now. I'm going to make your life so miserable, end quote. He then forced Francine to cook his dinner and then ordered her to have sex with him. When she didn't respond, he raped her. After the oh, last, but I think you forget, spousal okay. rape was probably also not a thing then. So. Yeah, it's a questionable thing, but yeah. Yeah. After this last assault, Mickey stumbles into the bedroom and passes out in a drunken stupor. 
Francine had reached her breaking point. She knew she couldn't go on like this. Quote, I was thinking about all the things that had happened to me, all the times he had hurt me, how he had hurt the kids, end quote. She packed up the kids and loaded them into the car. She then retrieved a can of gasoline, entered the bedroom, and poured gasoline around the bed where Mickey slept. According I do not blame her no. at all. Mm-hmm. According to Francine, quote, I was as calm as though I were doing an ordinary thing. This was the easiest thing I've ever done. I picked up the gas can and unscrewed the lid and went into the bedroom. I stood still for a moment, hesitating, and a voice urged me on. It whispered, do it, do it, do it. I sloshed the gasoline on the floor. If I saw Mickey lying there, I, I don't remember. I don't believe I looked at him at all, end quote. Wow. Yeah. So she lit the gasoline on fire. Later, Francine said, quote, only then did it hit me. My God, what are you doing? The fumes of gas caught with a roar and the rush of air slammed the door with tremendous force, almost catching my hand. I ran for my life, end quote. Wow. So as the house is going up in flames, Francine gets in the car with the kids and flees. She drives quickly away from the burning home and heads straight for the police station to turn herself in. Oh, so she turned herself yep, in for she it. went, yeah, totally just turned herself in, realizing what she had done after the fact. Wow. So basically, she kind of reached her breaking point, realized too late what she did, and then just went right to the police. There is a point where you're, like, your brain pretty much shuts down mm-hmm. and your body takes over, and that's definitely what happened here. That's why it was interesting to see, like, how she described it as, like, just, like, an automatic everyday thing. It's like an out-of-body experience, pretty mm-hmm. much. You're just kind of there, and you don't really realize what's going on until it's too late. Yeah. So by the time the firefighters actually respond to the house, Mickey was dead of smoke inhalation. The police arrest Francine and charge her with murder. Now, at trial, Francine's lawyers argue self-defense. They say... She was temporarily insane. How could she not be? She suffered years of abuse at Mickey's hands. Oh, yeah. And the attack on the day of the fire was so vicious, it just pushed Francine past the breaking point psychologically. Uh, The prosecution also didn't press the case very difficult. They also found that Francine's plight was very sympathetic. And on November 3rd, 1977, Francine was acquitted by a jury. Her case did garner national coverage, though. And it was a case that was used as a way to draw attention to the plight of domestic violence by activists. Basically, there were, this was happening to a lot of women. A majority of women who were in American jails at this time for murder had murdered a partner. And usually circumstances about the domestic abuse that may have been going on weren't considered extenuating factors in murders. Okay. I mean, it still happens today. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's definitely... Uh, a higher rate of women of color being incarcerated for killing a partner versus uh, white women, but it's still something that's being fought for by activists. Yeah. Because I mean, prison reform is like a whole big long Mm -hmm. thing that we're not going to get into, but it definitely needs to seriously happen. Now the defense that Francine's lawyer used, which was nicknamed the burning bed syndrome was used in other court cases in the 1970s from women who killed their abusers so battered women's syndrome the burning bed syndrome it's something that researchers studied to say yeah this is a thing that happens to people who are victims of abuse is this where that uh florence the machine song lyric comes from maybe that one's on i set fire to, to a bed, bed. Yeah. yeah hit with a kiss yeah that's a song all about a weird abusive relationship yeah. now you may be wondering what happened to francine after her acquittal well she was understandably 
troubled and she struggled for a few years afterwards with drugs and alcohol before finally getting back on her feet. In 1980, she married Robert Wilson, who was a country musician, and she became a nurse. She became an LPN. She married a country musician? Yeah, she like moved to Tennessee. Oh, wow. And I mean, I don't know how successful he was, but apparently enough to like make a living at it. Okay, yeah. In 1984, Francine's story came to the small screen in the TV movie The Burning Bed, which starred Farrah Fawcett, and was based on a 1980 book of the same name by Faith McNulty. The rest of Francine's life was relatively quiet. She passed away in 2017 from complications that developed when she caught pneumonia. She was 69 years old. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she still lived a pretty long life, but. So that's the story of Francine Hughes and the burning bed. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. Now I kind of want to watch the Sparrow Fawcett movie. It's 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 pretty good. I remember. Um, I remember my mom telling me about it and then like I looked it up I think when I was in high school and it's it's a good TV movie like Farrah Fawcett's great in it. That's good because normally when I see starring Farrah Fawcett all I see is hair and that's it. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) But uh, yeah. So what do you think? Um, definitely a good story to tell. I mean, it was hard for us to make that one funny because yeah, it was hard just, to get through it. For sure. Yeah. Um, because spousal abuse is just not something to really joke about. I mean, we joke about a lot of things we shouldn't joke about, but <laughs> you know, when it's a very real thing, it's a very real problem that happens. And I'm not saying yes, go out there and kill your husband if he's doing this. Of course not. But you know, this was an extreme circumstance mm-hmm. where there was, she felt like she had no way out yeah. and it's unfortunate and it should have never gotten to that point yeah. at all ever. Yeah. I think it's really a case of like how society kind of failed her and her kids. Yeah. So, I mean, even doing everything the right way, is sometimes not enough. Um, restraining orders, restraining orders mm-hmm. are just a freaking piece of paper. If yep. they want to get to you, they're still going to get to you. Yeah. And I think I, I only listed some of the more, um, prominent times that she reached out for help but she pretty much was going to you know anybody in the community who could help her from you know the late 1960s through the 70s yeah and she just kind of had to deal with it which is kind of crazy That's horrible yeah so my sources for this week's story were wikipedia rank.com michiganhousesonline.com lansing state journal the new york times People Magazine, The New Yorker, History.com, and The Washington Post. All right. Well, thank you very much, Nicole. That was pretty damn cool. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's time for a break. Yes, I need one after that. (laughs) Well, we'll be back shortly, gang. See you then. And we're back. We're back. Refreshed, I guess. Yeah. I tried to think of something funny to say. Not happening. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I brought Eden way too down, guys. Yeah. I do have an interesting story, though. Oh, that's exciting. Maybe it'll bring us back up. No, it won't. Oh, damn. Not at all. Oh, Not well. Not in a million years. All right. Uh, it is one that we might be able to relate to a little bit. I mean, that's something. My story for this week takes place in Marquette, Michigan, which is also in the Upper Peninsula, like my last story. Marquette is the county seat of Marquette County, as should be no surprise. Because, you know, same name. That's funny. Both of my stories were in the Lower Peninsula and both of yours were in the Upper. <laughs> well, we had a good, you know, good diversity then, I guess. Um, I felt bad about doing both of them in the Upper Peninsula. But anyway, so it's also the largest city by population in the Upper Peninsula with 21,355 residents. 
Uh, as we somewhat got into last week, the area's main industry is iron, hence all the names from last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Marquette being right on Lake Superior, it's a major port for shipping this iron. It's also home to Northern Michigan University and was even voted one of the 10 best places to retire in the U.S. Oh, cool. So it must be a pretty cool place. So this town seems to turn out a lot of Catholic bishops. As when I was looking for famous people from this town, there were six of them. Wow. Six bishops from this town. Also, it seems to be a good casting spot for Star Trek The Next Generation as actress Susan Diol and Mary Stein were both on the show. Those names might not sound too familiar, but you've Mm -hmm. definitely seen them both in stuff. Susan was in the Alien Nation movie. I remember that movie. Yeah. I remember the show better than I remember the movie, but yeah. Uh, And she was on Quantum Leap and Seinfeld. Okay. uh, While Mary was in Changeling, the movie um, with with Angelina Angelina Jolie. Jolie. Based off of a true story, too. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a good movie, but way too um, depressing. Mm. Uh, She's also in How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey. Okay. And Babe, Pig in the City, which is the Babe movie that I did not see. (laughs) I didn't even want to see the first one, but I'm glad I did because it was actually pretty good. So, while I don't know why they love to cast people from Marquette and Star Trek shows, my haunted location might shine some light on all the bishops. All right. This is the story of Holy Family Orphanage. Oh, this could be real dark. Yeah. I was beyond excited when I found this story because I don't think we've done an orphanage before. And I always find them just a little on the creepy side, especially since it's a Catholic one. Too. Oh, yeah. Double dose of creepy. Yeah. It, like, it just sounds like a good setting for a horror movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, this orphanage, which actually looks pretty nice, began construction in 1914 and opened the following year. It's mostly brick, but the entrance is made from local sandstone, and while it's pretty, it also has this eerie quality about it. It's also huge, and it stands six stories high. Wow, that's a huge orphanage. It's very big. The cost of construction was $100,000, which would be around $2.5 million today. Another source said it was over 120000 though, so I'm not sure what the exact amount was, but still, it was a lot of money for back then. Yeah, for sure. In addition to the basics of bedrooms, a kitchen, and bathrooms, it also had on-site laundry facilities, classrooms, a dining hall, playroom, and a chapel, which, although they seem like givens, I thought it would be good to mention them anyway. Okay. The reason for its construction was because there were only two other orphanages in the area, and both of those were filled to capacity, so they just needed more space to house more orphan children. When this place opened, which seemed rushed because it did so directly after construction was complete, uh, it began housing orphans between grades 2 and 8, but later accepted older and younger children as well. Okay. It's also not exactly exclusive to orphans. Uh, Some children here actually had a parent or two, but people would give up their children because they couldn't afford them. Mm. I mean... I'm glad you aren't leaving them on the side of the road, but maybe think about that before you have a kid. Well, I mean, this was a time period where, you know, birth control wasn't quite as readily available. True. And if you're Catholic, you're not allowed to use it anyway. Yeah. Actually, kind of reminds me of all of those unsolved mysteries about the separated family members, separated siblings. Yeah. It was like back in 1928, 
they had to give them up because they couldn't support the kids anymore. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's a pretty common thing, probably. So, I mean, and things can happen where you, you know, don't have a job or you don't have this. So, you and know. This is probably before, like, the social work system. Probably, was yeah. In place. Before so. any sort of social yeah. services. At its height, the orphanage housed over 200 children, which made it the largest in the city. Wow. Uh, this is going to sound kind of shitty, but it was 1915. So that's just how they did things. Not that it's an excuse, but, you know. This orphanage was meant to only house white children. Uh, fortunately, this didn't happen and, in fact, housed 60 Native American children who were its first residents. Hmm. These children were transfers from another Catholic home in the area. Unfortunately, this is pretty much just as problematic as the whole whites-only orphanage thing because, as you may know, a lot of Native American children were taken from their families and put in places like this so they could be assimilated into quote-unquote American culture. Mm. So, Great. yeah. So I told you this story was going to be cheery. Mm-hmm. The really sad part about this is there were so many Native American children uh, that grew up this way never knowing their history and their culture yeah, until they were much older. Yeah, I think that's something that happened, you know, all all over the country too, like with like the Indian schools and Absolutely. stuff like that. Yeah, this is again just like that. So, perfect example. Uh they also took in refugees from Cuba in 1965 during the time of Fidel Castro. So, I guess they aren't all that bad though. At least they did that, which is good. Well, Consider housing refugees, children, among a list of probably no other good actions this place has taken, though. Jesus. Like, our highlight is, like, giving refugee children a place to live. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not It's Quasimodo ringing the bell and saying sanctuary for those kids (laughs) and then nothing else. Now, Nicole, you went to Catholic school like I did. So you know how strict they are, right? Yeah. And you probably know what everyone thinks of when they think of nuns. That ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone kind of just views them as these mean, nasty taskmasters, which is what they reportedly were at Holy Family. I don't know if they slap people with rulers, but probably, because that seems to be the Catholic way of doing things, especially if you're left-handed. <laughs> no southpaws in this school. Mm-mm. That's, that's the hand of Satan. That, that's the devil's hand. So... That I, did I tell you that um, we think that I might have been left-handed? No. Yeah, I'm definitely a righty now, but people always say when they see me write that I hold my pen weird and it seems like I am trying to write left-handed with my right hand. Oh, yeah, I do that too. I hold my hand weird. Yeah, but I went to Catholic school, so they think that the nuns probably beat it out of me. Oh, I mean, I didn't have a nun ever. Really? I only had priests. Huh. But that's probably because I went to a small, like, country parochial school okay yeah but uh i did learn cursive in a weird way where like you know your slant is supposed to be towards the right of the page yeah mine will like, curl around and be towards the left like oh, wow. the way that, like left-handed people would yeah. write and they're like you're doing it wrong i'm like it's fine no i have that common lefty problem where your hand smears the ink oh yeah me too yeah because i write like uh, I, I write weird yeah, yeah i write weird I'm glad I'm not the only one. No, I never, ever got a satisfactory in penmanship ever. No, never. And it's funny because so many people, I'm like, your handwriting is so beautiful. Like, oh, well, I went to Catholic school. I'm like, I went to Catholic school too, and mine's crap. So, Well, there's that certain, 
I like to call it the 1960s Catholic school font where it's like, is that calligraphy? No, you just have really excellent Exactly, yes. So let's go in the same vein with evil nuns because there were the basics that you would expect from a Catholic orphanage. Uh, the children pretty much just went to class, went to church, and then did chores most of the day. But there were also plenty of allegations of abuse. On a lighter note, because you're going to need it to deal with the horrible stories to come, when these kids were allowed to play outside, to get them back in, the nuns would actually blow a horn to signal the end of playtime. Yeah, it seems more like a call to battle than anything else. <laughs> All more Christian soldiers back to clash. Exactly. They probably called it like the Horn of Jericho or something. Oh I don't know. God. <laughs> Only other Catholics will get that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, some children here would suffer horrible punishments, such as being locked out in the cold, and it gets very cold Ugh, in Michigan in, in Michigan? winter. Yeah, Jesus. Especially with all that water around, it's even colder. Mm-hmm. And they would uh, would be beaten, a lot of them, uh, with some of them being beaten to death by the nuns, mm. reportedly, at least. Some children, after they were grown, refused to ever talk about their time at Holy Family Orphanage. There's even one really disturbing story that's only been partially verified, but even if it's only half true, it's still horrible. There was a little girl who went out to play during a snowstorm and got lost. A nun went to find her, but by that time she had already gotten sick with pneumonia and died a few days later. Mm. The nuns were so mad that she disobeyed and she decided to go and play outside during the storm that they displayed her body in the lobby of the orphanage and forced each child to look at her corpse as an example of what happens when you don't follow the rules. Wow. Talk about scarring people for freaking life. Oh my God. Yeah. They did eventually have a funeral for the little girl in the basement of the building. Uh, When former residents were asked about this event, they said that she did in fact die in the manner suggested, but they refused to comment on what happened to her body. So basically they didn't confirm the event, but they also did not deny it. Fucking nuns, Because their people are, like, afraid to talk about this place, it seems. There was also another story, which was pretty vague, but a boy either drowned or was beaten to death, and the nuns tried to cover it up, and they kept his body in the basement. Oh. Yeah. Uh, The building saw its last child leave in 1967, and the building was only used for its administrative offices at this point up until 1981 or 82, where it was abandoned and left to sit and rot. I mean, good riddance. Yeah. I've seen pictures of the building from its t- uh, from this time, and they are pretty creepy, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I And I think it's a Catholic school thing, but anything like weirdly religious just creeps me out. Oh, yeah. So. It's not just a Catholic school thing. I think it's also like that horror movie primed thing where it's oh, like yeah. when you see like a broken religious statue or like those alcoves where the statues rest. It's yep. always a, a little bit spookier than it was before. Oh, absolutely. The building was purchased by a businessman named Roger Rin or Rinny, maybe. I don't know. It's got an E at the end. Could be silent because English is a weird language. Or it could be not silent because French. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In 1998, um, and he planned to turn this building into an assisted living facility. This plan never came to fruition, however. He put it up for sale after this and wanted absolutely no less than the $1.6 million that he had paid up for it. Mm-hmm. Mind you, the building was appraised at $2 million, So, I mean, I guess it's still a deal. Yeah. 
The building was purchased in 2008, I don't know how much for, and there were plans of turning it into a performing arts school, but sadly this did not last forever, and again the building went unused. Oh, you're not going to laugh at my fame joke? Oh. <laughs> I was wondering if people I, would get that. I missed it. I'm like, wouldn't last forever. Oh. Because it's a performing arts school. Bam! Yeah. I'm going to live forever. Anyway. Okay. A few sources I looked at seem to say the building was going to be demolished at some point, but there were no dates, so I don't know if this is the case since uh, others never really mentioned demolition plans. Okay. If demolitions plans were in effect, it was saved in 2015 by being added to the National Register of Historic Places in that year. Hmm. So it must be like some group of folks who want to preserve this building. Yep. Even if they can't buy it, I guess. Renovations took place in 2016, uh, and I'm assuming it switched hands yet again at this point. It was turned into apartments now, and they're called the Grandview Apartments, which provide 56 different units ranging from one to three bedrooms. Oh. Yeah, it's apartments. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, with so many negative things happening here, this place is now home to some paranormal activity, and some of the spirits of those orphans who have passed away on the property may still haunt its halls. I believe it. Oh, that's not an apartment building I want to live in ever. Not at all. Big nope. This is why you need to buy and not rent, folks. Yes, exactly. If you can. Then, I mean, you're still probably going to end up with a haunted place, depending on how old the building is or what it was on before it became whatever. You can't even build new because you don't know what's under that ground. Exactly. Yep. I've seen poltergeist. I know how this works. Exactly. Due to the rumors of paranormal activity... Holy Family Orphanage became a popular hangout for Northern Michigan University students looking to get their spooky on. I mean, guilty. Exactly. You told me what you did in Staten Island. Yeah, that monastery across from <laughs> our school. Yeah. It was extra creepy because of all the weird, like... Graffiti and yeah, shit. Yeah. And, like the old chapel is super creepy. Ugh. Yeah, I get kind of goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> um, so one student said when she and her friends snuck in, and they they saw an empty baby carriage roll across the room on its own. What? That is freaky. Mm-mm. No. Nope. Mm-mm. Sounds of children crying have also been heard in the lobby. Did you see that movie? Um, that this is reminding me of that. Uh, it's Guillermo del Toro. It's called The Orphanage. It was all in Spanish. I didn't. It's really good. Yeah. I saw it a while ago, so I don't know if I'd still think it was good. But back then, at least, I thought it was good. His movies usually creep me out. Yeah, it was very creepy, and it was about this um, these people that had bought this place that used to be an orphanage, and it was definitely very creepy, and there's a twist that I'm not going to say in case you want right. to watch it. I'll but watch it. It was good. So uh, there's this medical table in the basement where they kept at least one dead body that we know about, and it sometimes glows with this green light. Ooh. Yeah. Don't know what that's all about, but it's creepy. People who live around the building say they've seen weird lights coming from the building with no explanation. I don't know if these were bigger lights or smaller ones, but my thought on this is if it's only smaller lights from inside, it's probably college students wandering around the building with flashlights. Yeah, it could be. That's something that I would think of. So possibly debunked. (laughs) Someone once went in with a medium to see what they could find, and the medium was hit with a cold blast of air 
and a horrible smell, which made her vomit, apparently. Oh, my God. So, like, that's how evil this place seems to be. Gross. Yeah. People say they feel uneasy walking around the old orphanage, which, I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. But it just seems like this overall sense of dread, kind of like Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Objects tend to move around on their own, and cold spots are common, along with orbs. Along with the sounds of crying children, screams have also been heard, along with children's laughter. Uh, I'll, I dislike everything in that sentence. Exactly. Nope. Fest from hell. Nope. Mm-mm. People do say that both the boy who died mysteriously and the girl whose body was on display haunt the halls of the old orphanage. I don't know what the girl does, but some people say that the boy either... Uh, he will either appear as a glowing green orb in the basement, uh-huh. so probably coming out of that table that his body was on. Yeah. Or, in a much scarier and probably untrue version, crawling out of his grave. Because okay. think he was buried on the property. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. I'm like, wait, but he just, okay. So he just crawls out of his grave, pet cemetery style. <sighs> Not something I would wish to see ever. Mm-mm, mm-mm. One source even said that this place might be a portal to hell, but I couldn't find anything else about that other than that statement. I would love to know more, though, because portals to hell intrigue the shit out of me. Fair enough. Yeah. This would have been a place I would have loved to explore, but sadly, it's been turned into affordable housing. How dare they? People shouldn't be able to afford housing. (laughs) But if they do, it should be haunted. Exactly. Affordable haunted housing for all. Anyway, what do you think, Nicole? Would you go there if you still could? I mean, I'm curious about the building today, honestly. Yeah. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming they removed, like, the medical table in the basement and stuff like I that. I would hope. Who knows? Unless you get half the rent if you keep that table in there. <laughs> what? That's a really interesting coffee table. Like, thanks. It came with the apartment. Never had a dead body. We sprayed enough Lysol, right? Like, it's great. Spills. You can clean up spills so easily. <laughs> this medical grade whatever (laughs) yeah i mean i think there's something very intriguing about abandoned buildings especially when they're large institutional abandoned buildings uh it could be definitely interesting to explore i think the story about the psychic like kind of like getting overwhelmed as soon as and like they entered the the building is very interesting to me and i am so curious to know about these apartments me too i want to know if anyone's experienced anything and that's that's pretty recent right they renovated 2016 I, I almost wonder if like in five years you're going to hear all these know, stories. Yeah. All these stories of people who live there and they're like, it sucked, but it was affordable. Like a cheap rent. No wonder. Cause there's ghosts everywhere. And- exactly. And I mean, it may or may not be haunted because I mean, it's a creepy old abandoned orphanage who isn't going to think it's haunted <laughs> first of all. Fair enough. But second of all, although it seems like really bad shit did happen here, a lot of it the people who live there refused to comment on Mm -hmm. so they didn't really confirm it but they also didn't deny it yeah so who knows it's a big mystery i guess we'll find out if people that live there start having experiences but i know i'll have to keep tabs on it unless it was the stuff in there that was haunted and not the actual building then Uh, might not happen i don't know because that can definitely happen too yeah Uh, my sources for this week were wikipedia ArcadiaPublishing.com, DesertedPlaces.blogspot.com, Substreet.org, AwesomeMitten.com, which I love that name. Obviously a Michigan yeah, site. Yeah, great. 99WFMK.com, and MiningJournal.net. Cool. 
Well, thanks for that, Eden. I, I enjoyed that story. Absolutely. I had fun covering it. Flashbacks. Yeah. Some definite flashbacks to <laughs> Catholic school. And any listeners out there that have children and are contemplating, do not send your kids to Catholic school. It is a waste of your money. And the kids are even worse than public school. So just send them to public school. <laughs> They'll get pretty much the same education. They'll deal with a little bit less of assholes. <laughs> they won't be confused about morality. Yeah. They won't have to do the Catholic aerobics every day. Catholic stand, aerobics? Sit, uh, stand, sit, sit kneel. kneel. Stand, sit, kneel. Yep. It's just the part where we stand. No, you kneel. Yeah. I that always, was uh, the worst. I always giggle because I think about... Um, so, you know, like you went to Catholic school, like I went to Catholic school, my wife went to Catholic school, and I always joke how there's like the Catholic school fashion sense. Yeah. Which is, even as adults, you still have a uniform. And it's like, what you do when you go to Catholic school is like, you have your school uniform. Yeah. You get home every day, you change either into like your play clothes or like your grubby at home clothes. And like as adults, it's so funny because I feel like people still have that. Like, they do that, yeah. Yeah. Even if like you don't work a job where you're wearing like a button down shirt or whatever. It's like you have your work clothes and you get home. And you have your home clothes. And you have your home clothes. It's so funny because it's like one of those things that always blew my mind when kids that I knew went to public school, like went shopping for clothes and they were just their all the time clothes. Yeah. I'm like, what? Don't you don't you have your at home clothes you change into? <laughs> it was so weird when I got to high school and was finally able to just wear my own clothes all day. Mm-hmm. It was so weird. Of course, then I wore some outfits that might be questionable by my standards <laughs> today but you know i shopped at thrift stores and would piece together whatever looked the most punk rock so fair enough fair enough well gang i hope you liked today's stories they're a little bit darker than than usual than usual but you know what sometimes a little darkness makes you appreciate that light that is true even though it might be a burning bed you never know you never know or uh, the soul of an orphan or of a soul of a lost orphan <laughs> Uh, if you would like to get in contact with us, you can do that a number of ways. You can send us an email. We are roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can check out our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and also on Twitter at Roadside Horror. Um, if you like what you've heard, you can go and rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, also tell your friends about us because we would love to have some more listeners. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, lastly, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Design for our logo. Until next time, gang. Creep, creep on, on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.